Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. I was so excited to be on Daniel Lana's podcast, The Chess Experience. We talked a lot about self-improvement. I talked about what it means for me as an adult to try and improve all the techniques I used, and I write about a lot of this and skip the line, but all the techniques I'm using right now to try to improve at something that I haven't worked at in 30 years. And everyone's telling me, and they're still telling me, it's impossible. But guess what? I'm now flying out to LA next week because I was invited to play in the US Senior Championship, and I'm super excited about that. I talk about all these things and how to improve as an adult, no matter what you're interested in. Talk about with Daniel Anna, and he was gracious enough to let me re-air his podcast on my podcast. So here's me as the guest. Hey there. Today's show is unique. Why? Because my guest is a fellow adult improver, and I actually don't feature many of them on this show because when I do an education episode, I choose to mostly focus on chess coaches who can help us. But today's guest is not your typical adult improver. Today's guest is James Altucher, who is an extremely successful entrepreneur and author. His books focus on self-improvement and how you can be successful in different areas of your life. And his podcast, The James Altucher Show, is wildly successful with over 40 million downloads, jealous, and with highly accomplished guests in chess and outside of chess like Gary Kasparov, Judith Polgar, Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, and more. And these guests on his show give insights on career and personal improvement. So... I thought it would be fascinating to talk with James about his own chess improvement to see how he applies some of what he teaches in his own books, as well as what he's learned from the successful guests that he's had. And even though James is actually a national master, his own story about getting back into chess recently is very similar to what we experience as non-titled players. And finally, James is just a really entertaining and engaging person to listen to. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, James, how are you today? Good. And once again, thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm pleasure's all mine. I'm excited and honored to have you on. Um, and, I love you know, talking about all things chess. 
<laughs> Perfect. Well, that's that's pretty much the entire conversation today. So yeah, uh, really excited to have you on. I first learned about you uh, as being a national master who wrote an article in New in Chess. And then I quickly learned more about you and realized that you're a really successful entrepreneur, an author, podcaster, and also that you have a somewhat similar journey to the adult improvers who listen to the show. So obviously, I want to talk about uh, all that connected together and uh, we can just start by discussing your chess journey, a little bit about the first phase of your chess journey and how that began for you. I think you were a teenager at the time. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't start playing. I mean, I knew the rules, but I didn't start playing until I was about 17. Hmm. So uh, basically, you know, I was fifth on my high school. They needed an extra person on, my, on the high school chess team. Someone like was sick that day. And so I was fifth board. And... <laughs> On the way, I didn't know anything. So, so on the way there, uh, the teacher in charge of the chess team gave me this beat up old book by Fred Reinfeld about the Stonewall variation as white, and I played it and won, and <laughs> I got addicted. And so, so that was it. And then uh, my first actual tournament, though, I was I was early, you know, I was around seventeen. I was seventeen years old, and from there I got addicted until I was about eighteen. <laughs> and then there was college and, and girls, so I stopped playing in tournaments. And then I got addicted again a few years later when I was about, I would say I was about 29 years old. And again, I was obsessed for about six months, took lessons from John Fedorowicz, who was a grandmaster. Mm -hmm. I really spent all day and night studying chess. And I was also a full-time employee at HBO, the television company, and mm -hmm. I was starting my first business. So finally, like one of my partners at the first business said, James, why are you doing this? This is a game for kids. Why? <laughs> you, you could be building a big business here. So I stopped playing again. And, uh, uh, and then I, I, 25 years later, I decided to start playing in tournaments. And, you know, the, the, it's a different game now. So adult improvement, it felt easy to me back then in 1997 when I was, you know, 29 years old. But now it's difficult. <laughs> Yeah, it's a different game, no pun intended. But like in the first big period for you in chess when you were a teenager, when you got into it, for real then, you you took that all the way to being a national master, right? I mean, was it in that first phase or was it later in your late 20s when you became a national master? It was in my 20s because um, what happened was I started and then about, you know, a, a little over a year later when I was 18, I won the New Jersey junior championship and high school championship. So I was in that kind of national tournament of high school champions. And then I, you know, once again, once college started, I got to about 2050 and then I more or less stopped, but I really wanted to get to 2200. So when I started again in 97 uh, or whenever it was, I figured, okay, I'm going to get the 2200. And about six months later, I, I went from 2050 to 2200, maybe a little more than six months. Hmm. And then I and then and then by the way, I wanted to stay above twenty two hundred because I figured everybody knows what that means to be above twenty. Everybody knows what a master means in chess, but nobody really knows anything else like what an expert means or what an international master means. They just think if you say you're a master, they think you're like a grandmaster or something. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I figured for business purposes alone, I wanted to stay above twenty two hundred. So when I felt like my rating was starting to slip. Uh, I just stopped playing in tournaments and I haven't played <laughs> in 25 years until a few months ago. 
there's one way to hold hold on to it, right? Is just stop playing. Well, then I found out that no matter once a national master, always a national master. So I wish I had kept playing, but uh, yeah. I didn't know that that rule. Yeah. So you took roughly like what a 24 year break from like practicing and playing seriously. Is that right? Yeah. Like I played Blitz online. Like I was one of the founders of ICC, which was an early uh, hmm. online chess server. Um, so I played Blitz obviously a lot online, but it was more like. I, I would tell people if you're on the phone with me, hundred percent guarantee I'm playing one minute chess while I'm <laughs> on the phone. And that was pretty much the extent of my chess. I played thousands of games that way because I was on the phone a lot, but that was how I played chess. Okay. So yeah, but like not not a serious approach to it where you're trying to get better every month and every year or anything like that. No, and like as an example, I was really surprised how different almost every aspect of the game was. Even though like I would play blitz here and there all throughout and I'd go down to Washington Square Park and play Blitz or whatever in New York City, I had no idea of anything. Like, I didn't know for... I would always just play on... I didn't know Chess.com existed, Lee Chess. I didn't know there was such a thing called the London opening. That, for <laughs> me, was like a new thing. Also, one big difference is there's there's kids in tournaments now. Like, when I was last playing, there really wasn't that many kids in tournaments. Now it's like 50% kids. Yeah. Uh, and just the whole way of studying, you have to know a lot more now to play good chess. Yes, absolutely. I want to dive into that in, in a second, uh, the differences and, and and what you've observed in that. Uh, definitely true about the kids. A lot of kids. I mean, I, I guess I can't speak to experience and knowing what it was like 20 years ago because I just did uh, inter-school tournaments at that time. But uh, yeah, it, it is surprising how many kids are, are in tournaments these days. Yeah, like, like when I first started playing, I was the kid and I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like an old, you know now it's like they're five years old or whatever and they're grandmasters already. But right. uh, uh, it was just like you know older, mostly obviously mostly men and kind of slovenly. Like it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't where, chess tournaments weren't known to be a place where you would find good hygiene. And then in the '90s, you would see a little change, but not so much. But now it's a hundred percent different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what got you back into chess? Well, I guess like many people, I saw The Queen's Gambit and I was like, oh, I could do this. Here's a show about something that I love. You know, when you, as you know, and as many of the listeners know, when it doesn't matter what rating you are, when you play chess, you, you love it. Like when you start, get to that level where you're playing in tournaments, you love the game. Back when I was 17 or 18, I read, for instance, the novel, The Queen's Gambit, which became mm. later the TV show. I read all the fiction I could find about chess. I read every chess book I could find. And back then, you had to read chess books. Like It's not like you had to set up a board, and if you wanted to learn an opening, you had to play out the opening and maybe write in a little notebook the, the critical lines. Like it was, it was different. So I saw The Queen's Gambit, and then I watched some streams playing chess, which I didn't know those existed. This was just like you know last year, about a year ago. Right. And no, not even a year ago. Uh, yeah, a little more than a year ago. And, uh, you know, I watched, you know, Hikaro's stream, Eric Rosen. There was all these new players I didn't even know existed. Like, if, if you had asked me to name the top 10 players, I could have named one, Magnus Carlsen. Maybe even in the top 20, Anand, I would have named also. Yeah. But that's it. I didn't really know what was the chess culture at the time. And so I started watching these streams and... I was just blown away by a the level of entertainment of watching these streams and b the level of knowledge of all these players and like all these tr interesting traps and openings and I knew my openings that I my repertoire that I had been playing for over 30 years was over like there, 
Like there was <laughs> refutations for everything. So I kind of figured, okay, well, at the very least, I should watch these streams and understand what the current state of the game is. And that, of course, got me into the rabbit hole, which I haven't come out of. <laughs> right. So you got inspired by the Queen's Gambit to get back, you know, a little more seriously, at least get back into the game. Then you discover these streamers and like the new chess culture that's around today. So around that time, did you just start right away and go big back into chess or was it a gradual ramp up to where you are now with it? No, I started right away and got big back in. <laughs> I, I can't, it's hard for me to do like halfway yeah. on anything. Like when I start a business, I'm fully in. When I write a book, I'm fully in. Uh, and what what was happening in my life at the time was I had um I had been doing stand up comedy actually for six years prior to this moment like almost every night performing and then COVID hit and the combination of COVID forcing me to stay at home and the Queen's Gambit it's almost like I needed something to be obsessed with I was obsessed with stand up comedy and that's what I had been doing like nonstop in fact right before COVID the week before COVID I was touring all around the Netherlands for instance and mm -hmm. doing comedy. And, um, but I had been doing it every night. I was, I was like addicted to it and one addiction replaced another, which was chess. And I don't want to call it an addiction because I really do think it's, it's, it's obviously not a drug. It's a, it's a beautiful game. And I think studying it is different than being addicted to it. Like the times when I've been addicted to chess, I would just play blitz or bullet, but studying it is a whole different thing where you take it really seriously and, and you, and you try to not only learn more chess, but you try to learn about learning because that's a critical part for an adult mm -hmm. improver is that I haven't learned something like chess since I was in high school or since I was a young person. When you're in school, you're better at learning in a lot of ways than when you've left that behind 30 years earlier. So I had to kind of learn more about learning in order to be an adult improver at chess, in order to get back to where I was at chess. Yeah, that actually brings up a topic I wanted to discuss with you a bit, uh, which is how is it different now learning chess for you than it was back in the 90s? Either just your own personal approach to it or you know, also just what's available as well. Yeah, it's a good question because it's, it's sort of hard to answer. Like I'm constantly trying to figure out when I learn something new, what's like an 80-20 rule here? What 20% can I learn that will give me 80% of the value? When I was younger, it was basically the, the cliche things. Okay, learn openings really well and study, you know, puzzles and tactics. And I would pretty much just focus on those two things with a little bit towards the end game, but not so much. And I just got really good at my openings then, which meant something different then than it does now. Now it's a whole different game because of chessable and the computer and so on. And uh, I didn't really know... Here I was over 2,200 and kind of at, at my peak, at least, you know, I was doing, I was having tournaments with well over 2,300 performance ratings. So maybe at my peak, I was 2,300 strength and I didn't really know. I realized now I didn't really know chess. Like I didn't really, I didn't know what it meant to like control the dark squares, control the white squares, take advantage of a, a space advantage. I didn't know what these things meant. And you didn't really, you didn't, I feel like at that level, at the 2,200 level, you didn't really have to know that stuff. Now you do, you have mm. to know a lot more like chess. So coming back to it, I noticed several things. One is the chess world has advanced. So a 2200 rated player or a 2000 rated player or an 1800 rated player or a thousand rated player is much stronger now than a thousand rated player was 25 years ago. There's no, a thousand rated player now is a strong player actually. And wasn't the yeah. case 25 <laughs> years ago because at the very least a thousand rated player does puzzle rush 
and watches some streams, looks at the computer for openings. So they get instant, they get much better instant feedback to their games. And the same thing for every rating level. So the state of the chess world had improved. On top of that, I had declined because I had been studying <laughs> for 25 years. So even my shoddy opening repertoire, which has probably been refuted 10 times over, even that I couldn't even remember the lines after 25 years. You know, then there's a, th- a third aspect, which is I had just been playing Blitz. So my tournament skills, which you don't really think about, you think, oh, I'm just going to be the same as a tournament as I am in slow games online or whatever. My ability to play in a tournament had gone down, maybe because I was rusty or maybe because I'm older. So the stamina is different, although I don't quite believe that. But definitely Mm -hmm. the skills of playing in a tournament, I didn't realize that was a skill set, but it is. And (laughs) and that had declined. So in every way, when you come back to the game, you're at a disadvantage and you have to really chop up all the skills you need to learn. I call them micro skills. And you have to like put together a study program for each one of those micro skills. And you, and like anything to get good, you, you usually need a coach. And then you had to understand that everybody else is doing the same thing. They're all using the computer and many people have a coach or if they don't have a coach, they have a virtual coach with the Twitch streams, you know, depending on who their, their favorite streamer is and so on. It's a very, very different experience than when I, you know, went from 2050 to 2200 in a short amount of time. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I won't dive into it too much because this is your interview. Um, But, uh, you know, as someone who got into chess heavily in middle school uh, in the 90s for myself and returned similar to you uh, in this era now in the past year and a half or so. uh, Yeah, I mean, just everything about studying feels different. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You said something that intrigued me, though, that you look for the 80-20, the the 20% of what you could do that's going to give you that 80% of your growth and impact. Have you found what that is yet? No. (laughs) And I really believed... Back in the 90s, and if anyone asked me in the OOs, you know, or, or all through the 25 years that I hadn't been playing, oh, how do you get better at chess? I would have said, if you just study chess tactics every day, like solve problems and puzzles, you'll get to 2200. And I don't think that's, so I thought that was the 20. Mm. The 20% to say that gives you 80% of the, of let's say the value of getting to 2200 and, or, or 2000 or 1500, whatever level you want to get to. I don't think that's true anymore. I think you really have to know something about chess now. And by that, I mean, you need to know the the deeper nuances of the, of the game to get to any level. And I didn't know that again, I'm saying even at the level I was, I didn't know any of that. And I would just, you know, I would just play, I would get into a position where, okay, I'm going to, I'm either going to storm the King or I'm going to, you know, take control of the center and then storm the king. Those are the <laughs> two chess concepts I understood. I'm either going to open up the H file and put my queen on H6 and checkmate, or or I'm going to um do F3, E4, E5, you know, and start to take space in the center and then open the H file and get my queen on H6 and checkmate. And now you have to know a, a many more concepts. So so and you really have to know them. You can't just know the opening. You you can't just know tactics. I mean, it's great if you know if you're really great at tactics that you you, you can't not be good at tactics. That's the one thing you can't not be good at. Right. But uh, but there's a lot of other things you need to do now to to get better. I would say if you do know openings pretty well, you're going to have an advantage over someone who doesn't. So that's important too. And here's another thing I didn't know. I did, I used to study a, the basic end games. Like how do you do it with you know, rook versus rook, and you have a bishop 
pawn and a rook pawn, and they don't. So I would I I studied Ruben Fine's book Basic Chess Endings back when I was eighteen, and I didn't realize the role of tactics in end games. And so now I study more tactics in end games, and I probably don't know the more algorithmic end games these days. Hmm. Do you have a goal in chess that you're working towards right now? Yeah. Well, for one thing, the first three or four tournaments I played in, and I lost immediately a hundred rating points. So <laughs> goal number one is getting back to where I was. But I'd, I'd like to, um, I'd like to get to the FM title. I mean, it's hard to have, I I'm always against having specific goals because maybe I'll be disappointed and I just really enjoy the game and like playing. And I get disappointed of course, when I lose and when I, and you always get disappointed. You can't avoid getting disappointed when you lose rating points. Cause that's the measure of how much you're improving based on the work you put in. So I, I, but I always tend to now view it as I get disappointed at first. And then, I mean, back when I was 18, if I lost a single game at a tournament, I couldn't even go to school the next day. Like I would be so upset. Mm. Now I'll be upset, but I'll, I'll think to myself, okay, you really mostly only learn from your losses. So, uh, this gives me when I lose, this gives me plenty of ammunition to study and get better. So I try to view it that way after I absorb the initial horror of the loss. But yeah, I think I'd like to get to the FM title and, and, but really I, I think I, the reason I have that goal is because not to tell everybody I have the FM title. Cause again, nobody even knows what that is, but <laughs> it shows me that this game that I've probably done more than just about anything else in my life. I improved. I got better. I achieved a level that is significant. Yeah, I think I can relate to that. And I think probably a lot of people listening can too, where uh, I do have my rating goals. But I, I think for me, the the most exciting goal is just to prove that I can improve and get better consistently. That's a really good point. Because when I talk about getting the FM title, that's for me, right? But someone who's listening to this, who's like an 800 rated player, who'd like to get to 1,000, that's a great goal to have, or that that really shows improvement, particularly it's hard to improve as an adult for many, many reasons. And some I agree with, some I don't. I don't think adults in general have slower minds than kids or have worse memory than kids. But what you just said, the feeling of improvement is a really great feeling. And everybody's got, you know, a learning curve looks like an S. It's sort of flat at the bottom because you don't care. And then it's really steep because you do care. And then you reach some plateau and it kind of levels off or you have other things going on in life and it levels off. Well, that feeling that when you're going up the steep part of the learning curve is a really great feeling. And to do it with something you love doing and for your listeners, that is probably chess. It's a really great feeling. And so to spend a year or two feeling that curve again would be really nice, no matter what your level is. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, you know, if I look ahead for the next 12 months of my chess improvement, sure, I'd love to improve by 300 points. But if it's quote unquote, only 100 or 150, I, I still take a lot of pride in that. It just shows that I've put in work, I've I've succeeded at improving. And I don't know, I just feel like there's a lot of inherent value and joy in that. Yeah, absolutely. And in a deeper way, too, it shows you one of the most important things in life, which is, you know, learning how to learn. Because we, we're never done from, from the time we're zero to the day we die. We're learning the best we can about all the things around us. And chess is like a good kind of compact domain that in order to improve, you really have to study not just chess, but yourself. Like how, how does one improve? How do I improve? What are the best methods for me to improve? So for instance, 
if some people get too disappointed when they lose and they just stop learning. And one way to improve, you know, if I'm going to think of the 80-20 rule, I'll definitely not improve at all if I give up after I lose six games in a row. <laughs> right. And so, so you have to learn the psychology. You have to learn what gives me stamina or what deprives me of stamina. What have I been fooling myself about? Like, okay, I thought I was a 2200. Well, in today's world, I'm not. So, uh, uh, you know, I have to start from scratch and, and understand what it means to dominate the light squares or, or <laughs> what it means to have a space advantage. You know, I always thought I was good at tactics. Well, I'm out of practice. So I have, I'm not, it disappoints me when I see I'm not as good as I once was. So I have to study a lot of tactics and, and openings. I, I switched from D4 to E4, which maybe I shouldn't have, but, but, <laughs> you know, now I'm really studying a whole new set of openings, which is a completely different game, by the way. If you, if you've only played one opening, you know, your whole life, and then you switch to the other way, if you switch from like D4 to E4 or E4 to D4, it's a hundred percent different game. It's not even comparable. The E4 game from the D4 game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll probably know what you're talking about. I mean, I know it from the reverse side where uh, I've always, I always play uh, one E4 as white. And when I'm on the receiving end of one D4 uh, as black, it, it, uh, it feels like a completely different game already. So I definitely hear that. Yeah, I just love what you said, James, about, you know, this idea that getting better at chess is a journey of learning how to learn. I absolutely love that concept. I think it puts a whole different perspective on it where, yes, you can still care about your rating in that uh, perspective, but it's not something you have to, you know, live or die by. It's more about learning how to learn, as you say. And I, I think that's a great perspective. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to, I mean, I think it's almost a cliche to say rating's not important at all. It, it's extremely mm -hmm. important because that's how you measure how you've been learning, how well you've been learning. But, you know, it depends what you're talking about. Like on, you know, online blitz, for instance, there's going to be high volatility. I can go up and down 200 rating points in a day. So there's <laughs> huge volatility. But in a tournament, people don't play that many tournament games, so it's a different thing. So you really have to focus your efforts when you're playing in a tournament and getting a, a quote-unquote, you know, real rating or, or offline rating. And you're not going to go, go up or down 200 points in a day, although I've been able to do it more recently. <laughs> and it's hard. Like, in the last nine tournament games I've played, I've won six, drew two, and lost one. And my rating still went down, which is... Uh. Which is frustrating yeah. and because i i lost to someone uh, a kid actually very low much lower rated than me and and he was good i mean there's nothing i could do about it he was a good player so so i part of learning for me now is also understanding what is the real strength of all these different players in different rating levels and you know and, and again on every level whether it's openings tactics end games you know various middle game motifs uh, studying all of them. And, and, you know, right when I started to get better or, or learn again, you know, I always, I always do what I call plus minus equal. So a plus is you find a coach, someone who's going to look at your games, give you feedback and you'll, and help you study equals are, I find people my level and I play them and I maybe talk to them and exchange ideas. And, that's been best done in tournaments because then you see people and you talk to them and so on. And then a minus, which is I give lessons as well. And the reason is, is if you can't explain something simply, then you don't truly understand it. So I called up the person who I gave lessons to briefly 30 years ago. And, 
I asked him, hey, do you want lessons again? And he said, sure, I just saw the Queen's Gambit. And I started giving him and a few other people lessons, which has been fun. That's great. I love that. James, one of the topics I'd love to discuss with you now is is the subject of age and improvement, because I think this weighs heavily on a lot of adults. They at least fear that age is affecting their improvement and maybe at worst are you know just convinced that it's limiting their improvement. And one of the things that attracted me to having you on this podcast was a recent chat you had with Grandmaster Ben Feingold. Uh, and you said with him that when it comes to improving at chess as an adult, you didn't believe that age means you have to slow down. Obviously, I love that attitude and believe it too. But for the skeptics out there, why doesn't age mean you have to slow down? I look back to when I was 18. I don't even really think I had more stamina or strength or endurance than, you know, whatever whatever sport I played back then, I could play the sport now and I probably, you know, can play it just as long now as as then. I don't really feel that much slowed down physically. People tell me it happens at some point, but I haven't seen it yet and I don't quite believe it. And people also told me my memory wouldn't be as good because of age. And I totally don't believe that. So yes, my memory is not as good as when I was 18, but I don't believe it's a biological thing. I think when we're when we're a kid, we're so used to memorizing things all the time for tests and homework and class. Like we just build that muscle really well. So it was interesting for me to remember things. And plus I didn't have as much on my mind. So it was easier to shift things from short-term memory to long-term memory because my long-term memory was relatively empty. So (laughs) now though, I'm out of practice with memory. So yes, it's a little bit harder for me to remember things, but the flip side, but, but A, I'm improving that. I'm actually taking memory lessons to improve my memory Mm. and, and I'm, practicing improving my memory and I you know in chessable or courses like there's there's new methods for studying openings that didn't exist back then and you know right. sometimes I find them helpful and age takes but also age gives so so I have more experience and and I have more yeah. experience with learning new things I've now when I was 18 the only thing I'd ever really learned that was difficult was chess but now I've learned many things <laughs> that were difficult yeah. uh, and you know, when I was in my 40s, I started from scratch doing stand-up comedy, which is incredibly hard. Or, you know, when I was in my 30s, I started writing and I've written 20 books since then. And these are incredibly difficult skills that I had to learn from scratch. So what age gives is it gives you kind of more ability to understand nuance and, and the gray areas. So when the computer says, oh, this move is bad, yet the computer's correct, of course, but it might not be a bad move for me, for instance. It might be lead to the sort of position where I'm more comfortable than someone else rated the same as me. And so you start to you you figure out your unique path a little bit better. Whereas when I was younger, I would only say, Oh, no, the, the book says this is good and this is bad, so I only have to play the good. So this is that's just one example of nuance. But in general, all all the chess strategies, like what you do with a, an open file, what you do with, you know, a bishop versus a knight. These are all gray areas, really, because sometimes a bishop is not better than a knight. Sometimes an open pile <laughs> is useless. And I feel like when you're older, you understand, the, at least for me, I tend to understand those things a little better. Like, I feel I know chess now much better than I did when I was even 2200 when I was younger. It's just, again, the, the chess world's changed, so I have to know a lot more. Yeah, wow, lots of great points there. I think, you know, what stood out to me that you said, James, is this idea that... uh 
age comes with strengths too. And I, and I think there's too much emphasis focused on just some of the negatives or drawbacks, not necessarily to age just biologically, but also just from, as you're saying, that stage in life, there's some drawbacks, right? You have more responsibility, you have more things on your mind. Uh, but as you said, there's also a lot of strengths that you can now have uh, being older that you didn't have when you were younger. And I don't, I don't feel like enough of the talk discussion around adult improvement focuses on that. It's just entirely what are the drawbacks, not what are the strengths. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And look, we live in a society that celebrates youthful prodigies. Oh, this 12-year-old became a grandmaster. You know, the top 20 players in the world are all under 40. I don't know what they are. Under 40. Anand's probably the oldest of the of the top 20. But, you know, almost all of them are younger than 40. You know, Magnus is about, I don't know, he's like 34 maybe. And a lot of players in the top 20 are even younger than 30. So we celebrate this kind of youthful prodigies, but there's a lot of older people who play very, very strong. I mean, as recently as the 80s, you had Smyslov playing in the candidates tournaments in 1983 or 84. And, you know, he played a candidates match against Kasparov and Kasparov's first uh, journey towards world champion. Smyslov was the world champion in like 1951, but he was still 30 years later into his old age you know, at the level where he's playing candidates tournaments. Now, I don't think you see that anymore. You know, Tal also. Tal played one of his best games, you know, when he was in his 50s, unfortunately, like a month before he died against Kasparov, where he crushed Kasparov. So I don't believe any of the people who say age is is relevant. And look, I've talked to Kasparov about this, and the one thing that age does give you is it gives you more things to do. So Gary Kasparov is a great example. He's a real hero in terms of his work in human rights and all the things he's done in that area, you know, since he retired from chess. And so he's just, you know, at the very top level, the youthful people play and study 24 hours a day. That's their jobs. And Gary had moved on to different things, but we don't have to compare ourselves to them. That's the top 20 in the world or the top 100 in the world. We compare ourselves to other, you know, everybody, you know, who's not in the top 20 in the world, they have other things to do in their lives. And so you can't use that as an excuse that age is a limiting factor because there's plenty of older people who are in the 2200s or in the 1200s or in the thousands or in the 1500s. So age is is not an excuse. Yeah, that's all excellent points. I also think there's a huge difference between saying something like, oh, if you're, I don't know, whatever, 30, 40, 50, that means you may not be able to be world champion. Okay, maybe there's an argument there. And a diff- versus saying, well, you're 30, 40, or 50, therefore you can't go from 1,000 to 1,800? Sure you can. I mean, I just feel like, you know, sometimes the, the, the age discussion around chess improvement is just focused on if you can't become world champion right now, therefore you can't improve uh, or improve to, to excellent levels, which is sort of a ridiculous argument to me. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I don't know if that makes sense. Let's say you play 100 games in tournaments. You know, blitz games are good. Slow games are good they give you different benefits. Slow games allows you to do deep calculation and thinking about a position and blitz games kind of show, show you a people think blitz is all about tactics. It's not really, it's about positional understanding because you could play better. Mm. You can play faster. If you know, Oh, in this type of position, I do this. You don't have to calculate. Calculating will always slow you down. So blitz is actually more about positional chess and, and openings than it is about tactics. Maybe at the end, it's about the end of every game includes a tactic. So, <laughs> so there is tactics and blitz, of course, but I would say calculating is more important for, for slow games. So 
if you study your losses, whether they're blitz or slow games, and I probably do it more with slow games than blitz games, you'll get better just because you'll understand what you did wrong and you'll try not to make that mistake. Like I was reading something where Heinrich Carlson says about Magnus that he never really, one thing about him is he never really studies the game, but he, when he plays a game and loses, he instantly digests hmm. what, what he learns. And so he was, he's very, a very good learner in that way. That's part of the reason why he hasn't, you don't really too, know too much about his coaches and so on. And it's because he just absorbs the knowledge from his losses very, very quickly. Studying your losses and trying not to make those mistakes again, that alone will, will make you better. Try to do it in blitz. It's hard because you feel like, oh, I got to play the next blitz game. But right. that's a very good way to improve also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I like to talk about the intersection between the concepts you discuss in your fantastic book, Skip the Line, and how that can apply to chess. So, you know, uh, for people who don't know, I would summarize your book as being about improving at a skill or career faster than what conventional wisdom would suggest is possible. And I guess I would start with what you said in that book, one of the big premises of it, which is that you don't believe in this 10,000 hour rule uh, that you need 10,000 hours to master something. And, you know, for all of us out there who'd love to, if not master chess, at least get really good at it. Why don't you believe in the 10,000 hour rule and, and what's required instead? Well, the 10,000 hour rule usually refers to getting the, to be the best in the world at something. So if you're mm-hmm. rated 800 and you want to get to 1200, you certainly don't need 10,000 hours. <laughs> right. If you're rated, even if you're rated 1000 and you want to get to 2000, you don't need 10,000 hours. You just need to, again, know how to learn really well. Uh, that's the skill you really need is, is learning how to learn. And uh, so, so what I, what I prefer is again, figure out, try to figure out what that 80, 20 is like, where can I put, what's the 20% of work I could do that will give me 80% towards my goal. And so what I talk about often is experiments, try to do experiments in, in whatever it is you're trying to learn. So, you know, for instance, an experiment, if you're trying to learn Spanish, an experiment might be, okay, only talk Spanish even if you're living in the U.S., only talk Spanish for the next 30 days and go to lots of restaurants so you mm-hmm. can speak restaurant Spanish. And that one experiment might get you, you know, 50% towards where where you want to be. Or, uh, you know, when I was doing a lot of stand-up comedy, one experiment I did was I went on a New York City subway and did comedy on the subway. And so you can't find a more hostile audience <laughs> than doing stand-up comedy on a subway. And it also focuses you to be really good with your one-liners because no one's going to listen more than one line. And so so I would do experiments like that. And an experiment in chess might be switching from D4 to E4, trying different things that you've, that you've never tried before. An opening's the, the best example. Or another experiment is, well, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to I'm going to solve 1000 tactics and then play in a tournament. That's an experiment. And then you see if you did if you do a lot better, you start to experiment to see where your your 8020 is. And I that that's that's always worked well for me. So it's it's basically uh shifting at least some of the emphasis away from how many hours you're racking up to experimenting and learning what can be most effective for you. Yeah. Is that a way to describe it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that works for everything. Like, look at look at Richard Branson. Okay, Richard Branson's famous entrepreneur, billionaire, started Virgin Records. 
And when he was 27 years old, he was a magazine publisher, a music magazine publisher. I don't know even if he, if he, even if he had a record label yet. And he did an experiment. He was kind of disgusted with the way airlines were being run. And he called up Boeing the, 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 that makes airplanes, the company that makes airplanes. And mm-hmm. he said, uh, can I borrow an airplane? And they <laughs> said to him, who are you? And he was like, oh, I'm a 27-year-old music magazine publisher. And they're like, are you kidding me? You're, how are we, why would we lend you an, a, a 747? <laughs> and he says, listen, you have, you know, British Airways has no competition in England. And what if they use Airbus instead of Boeing? So I'll use Boeing. And then he calls up the airport and he says, look, it's not fair that there's only British Airways. There's no competition. And so, you know, give me a landing strip. And they gave him one in another airport, but, you know, right near there. And same with JFK. And he did this little experiment. They all could have said no. And his experiment would have been over and we never would have heard about it. But instead, he started Virgin Air. And that actually made him the most money out of anything he's done in life was from that one experiment. So if you're really good at like, so the, 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 the aspects of an experiment are, it's very cheap to do. So it was very cheap for Richard Branson to make these phone calls, cost him nothing. It was very cheap for me to do comedy on a subway, cost me nothing. So it's very cheap to do because most experiments fail by just the nature of being an experiment. Right. And they have very little downside. Like there's no such thing as failure in an experiment because even if an experiment doesn't work, you can ask yourself, well, why didn't it work? Well, so on the subway, if everyone booed me, I could say, why do they boo me? Maybe my, my one-liners were no good. I should get better at that. So there's always information you get even when your experiment doesn't work out. But then the upside is enormous on an experiment. <laughs> I mean, Richard Branson made billions. We don't know how many experiments he failed out, but we know from that one experiment, which took him a day or two to make those phone calls, he made billions of dollars. Of course, there was a lot more work than that, but it started off as an experiment. So the, you know, Thomas Edison you know, famously... 10,000 times he tried to make the right kind of wire to light a light bulb. And it was on the 10,000th try, supposedly, that he succeeded. And a reporter asked him, you know, Mr. Edison, how does it feel to fail 10,000 times? And Edison said, you know, my good sir, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I learned 10,000 ways not to light a light bulb. (laughs) And that's a good way to approach this. Because you're going to fail everything worth getting good at. You're going to fail a lot. There's not really such thing as talent. Maybe there is a little bit. Maybe there's like 5% of it, and some people are more talented than others. But for anybody rated between 500 and 2300, say, we all kind of have the same level of talent. You know, then after that, what separates people is how good they are at, at learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're speaking my language here. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm also uh, one of the uh, few people who doesn't really believe much in talent. And uh, I, I think we, I'd have to set aside another hour <laughs> to discuss that with you in a, on another podcast, uh, which I'd love to do. But but I, I love hearing you say that anyway. But you know, but you know, the thing is, yeah. it also depends when you start. Like, it is true that if you start playing chess when you're five years old, you don't have anything else to do. You can play chess for the next 10 years, like eight hours a day, okay. no one's going to criticize you. So it, that's why it seems like kids are more talented. But they're not. It's just when you start at the age of 24, when you have a job and you have kids and you're getting married and you're paying the mortgage, you're not going to be able to put in the same energy that a kid would, which is why it's so important to make sure you're using your energy properly. Like instead of going on Twitter an extra 10 minutes, you know, solve, you know, five chess puzzles, 
make sure you're using your fringe moments appropriately. You're in the back of a cab, study chess. Wasting time on Twitter, stop and study chess. You know, when you're older, you have to use your fringe moments where it's sort of random what you're doing. You have to use those moments in a more curated fashion and use it to your benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel that the biggest advantage that, that kids have over adults isn't so much something biological, but just the time and the hours that they have to put into it. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, i definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMSS. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options, hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
on the experiment subject, I'm curious. I know you said that, you know, experiments by nature will more often fail than not, and that's fine. Have you done any experiments that have worked for you in chess? Yeah, at every level. So I might experiment with, I'm going to play much more tactical and attacking-oriented openings. I'm going to try an experiment. Or I'm going to try an experiment. I'm going to play a much more slower positional opening because I don't want to get a bad position out of the opening. And then I'm going to see where my positional ability is and just play a, a maneuvering positional game. So for instance, on the one hand, I could play some wild E4 gambit or I could play the much slower Kali system. It's a D4 opening. like It's D4. It's almost like a London, except your bishop stays on C1. And uh, uh, that's a much slower maneuvering type of game. And you're not going to get a huge tactical free-for-all by move 10. You're still going to be maneuvering then. You know, those are two different experiments that I actually have tried. And turns out I wasn't that good at the slower maneuvering ones. <laughs> and I could see very clearly that I had m- many more opportunities in the the tactical attacking free-for-alls. But I, I learned a lot about myself. Like I, le- I had to learn how to, when I'm out of book in those, I have to switch into tactics mode instead of being scared. Like, what's what's the next book move? And so I, I it made me look, treat openings in a different way. So just a few experiments changed completely the way I view my own personal openings. And chess is a little harder to quantify what the experiments are. But like the way I, I I'll try different ways of studying tactics. Like should I study positions that take twenty minutes to solve, or should I study more positions that take three seconds to solve? And I've experimented doing one thing one day and then playing chess and see how I do. And then the other thing the next day and playing chess and see how I do. It turns out for me, I feel like I get much more improvement when I study intermediate level puzzles instead of the hard level puzzles, which let's say a hard puzzle takes me a minute to two to solve. And the intermediate ones might take me 10 seconds to solve. That that gives me, for some reason, allows me to solve more problems, which is better for my tactics in a game. So that was something you 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 doc, you get data, so you document what happens in an experiment, and you decide what to do. Right, right. That's excellent. You have a lot of great lessons in your Skip the Line book. I'm wondering if there's, I mean, even in addition to the experimentation idea, if there's any others that that have worked for you as applied to your chess improvement journey? Yeah, studying my own games is something I really didn't do so much before 30 years ago, but is hugely important. I see very clearly how hugely important it is for me now. And I do that with a coach. And so I, I take lessons from Jesse Cry, who has the YouTube channel and Twitch stream Chess Dojo Live. Mm-hmm. And he's a very good coach and, and really encourages me on studying my own games. So that is an experiment that I had never really done before, but it, it works really well. What was the like lesson from your book that that led you to that? Well, A, having the plus minus equal. Okay. Because he was he became my plus. He was my coach and he suggested mm. doing this. And I had seen people write about that, but I never really took that seriously before. I figured, okay, if I lost, I didn't know that opening so well, so I'll just study that opening again. Now I really understand, okay, I went on a little adventure with my queen over on the queen side when it should have been more in the center and not as committed. So I'll learn things about myself by I learned from studying my own games that I'm not very good at evaluating whether I'm slightly better or slightly worse. (laughs) And so I had to get a lot better at that, but I never knew that before. You know, I always thought, oh, if I'm down, it's clear. And if I'm up, it's clear. But I saw some positions where 
I thought I was down, but actually I was ahead. I just needed to defend. I thought every time I was defending, I was down. But, you know, like the computer would say that I was down. Get really scared or nervous and then make really super defensive moves and then lose. So, and then, and this was helpful, you know, studying these positions with the coach and also looking at the computer. But really, the other thing that's very interesting is studying games over a real board because you should always practice what you actually want to do. So if I just watched Twitch streams about chess, okay, that would help a little and it's entertaining. But when I'm playing in a tournament, you're not watching TV, you're playing over a real board. So there's also some benefit to exactly mimicking the situations you know you're going to find yourself in. And that's the real study. So looking at it, my games over a real board is very valuable as opposed to even looking at them on a screen. Interesting. Yeah, I've always been an advocate of working on the board if you're going to do over-the-board tournaments, uh, but I haven't thought about reviewing the game on the board. <laughs> I review it on the screen, so that's an interesting point. You know, the other thing is, and this is advice Judith Polgar gave me, which is uh, study, practice blindfold chess, because then you get very good at visualizing. Mm -hmm. And so I did an experiment. Like one day I just studied like for a couple hours blindfold chess, and then I played blitz online and man i was just killing it uh and so i've made it more of a regular practice now to study you know there, there are some books actually about blindfold visualization that i bought and and that was a really good experiment to to take obviously to take Drew polgar's advice is, is in itself a good thing to do but <laughs> right. it turned out to be very good good advice yeah um you interview a, a, a ton of highly successful guests on your podcast, from Tony Robbins to Gary Kasparov, uh, and I'm very jealous of, of all that, <laughs> but it's amazing. Have there been any lessons that you've learned uh, about success or improvement from these very accomplished people that you've been able to apply to your own chess journey? Yeah. I mean, with all these successful people, and I've interviewed like well over a thousand of them, uh, including Richard Branson, by the way, who I talked about earlier, but, but yeah. many, many people in many different industries. And there's some overlap to what they all say, but it's always interesting to see the different things they say. Like Gary, for instance, Kasparov was, he was very talented right from the get-go. And so it's not like he could really describe very well what, what he studied. He was just a, he's like a true genius right out of the box. And so from him, I learned different things than studying chess. But, uh, for most people, it's really about trial and a lot of error. Mm. So it's really about being, it's about liking yourself enough that you could fail a lot and be disappointed a lot and still know that your identity is not wrapped up in this. It's not wrapped up in how much money you have. It's not wrapped up in what your chest rating is. As much as you want to get to a thousand or 1500 or whatever, and as, and, and believe me, it's disappointing. When you, when you lose games and go down rating points, but that's not who you are. And I think that was really important to realize. The other thing is also have like a, a higher purpose to what you're doing. So sure, it's great to play chess, but you know, also my, uh, you know, if I were to give a higher purpose to what I'm doing is I want to show that adults can improve, for instance. Yeah. And so that, so, so always try to give yourself kind of a meta purpose to everything you do. Like, do you want to make a million dollars or do you want to make a business that helps the lives of a million people? Now, both are the same goal, but having that higher purpose really 
allows you to persist even when things seem to be going against you for a long period of time. So I think that's really important for many of these people. Like you, you pick any business like Michael Dell. He didn't just say, Oh, I want to make a million dollars in my college dorm room. He said, Oh, there's gotta be a cheaper, better way to sell computers than buying these expensive IBM PCs, you know, from IBM. I'm going to just, you know, buy the parts, construct computers in my dorm room and sell them super cheap. And that's what he did. And it became, you know, he's worth like 30 or $40 billion now. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, You've had interviews with, like I said, Kasparov and Judith, and you mentioned Judith Polgar. Uh, who else is on the top of your list in chess that you'd love to meet or have on your podcast that you haven't already? Well, obviously, Magnus Carlsen. And <laughs> by, by the way, I've, I've played a, a blitz match against Henrik Carlsen, his, fa- his father, who's about a 2300 uh, player, like FIDE strength. And, um, and then he came on the podcast. He's a really great guy. Uh, uh, the, uh, the match, if I remember correctly, See, this is where my memory is. I think <laughs> I think it was like four games to two, something like that, or three games to two, where he won. And um, but I felt happy with it. I was very nervous. And uh, in the chess world, I was very happy to have Judith Polgar on because I'm a, a big fan of her her style. And of course, Kasparov was a, a dream come true. Yeah. When I had Kas- Gary on, I've, he's been on my podcast three or four times now. But the first time he was on, I brought a chessboard, and at and he was he he had written a book about AI or something else unrelated to chess. And we talked, that's what we talked about in the podcast. But then at the end, I said, can we play a game of chess? And I could see, I feel bad now thinking about it. I could see he was so disappointed I asked that. He really did not want to, there was, there was no upside for him to play a game of chess with me. And of course, we did play and he crushed me. And it, actually the game's on YouTube somewhere. If you Google like Al Pichur and Kasparov. But um, I guess he felt like he had to play. I'd just been, you know, talking about his book and, and, he, and we were going to advertise his book on the podcast and so on. But I can see he really didn't want to play. But he was good about it. And he played and, and appropriately crushed me in an opening that I had been playing for 30 years. And <laughs> that was the last time I played that opening. I literally thought he refuted that opening. Uh, now I've since studied it. I don't know if he refuted it, but it was a very good line that he played. And, you know, other people in the chess world other than Magnus, it's an interesting question because my podcast is not – about I don't know if I don't know how big my chess playing audience is. So yeah, I would love to interview Hikaru or Grishik or um, you know some of these other players, but you know it's not really the place for it on my podcast. At some point, I'll interview my coach though, like Jesse Cry, because mm-hmm. that's about learning and not just about chess. Right, right. I guess you know Hikaru has a really successful business now too, so there's that overlap as a subject, right? Since you're you've that's been... true, actually, how to convert your love into business. Maybe I'll I'll be able to reach out to him. You know, I'll tell you a story. One of the very last tournaments I played in, um, I'm playing this little. It was 1997. I'm playing this little kid, and it's this, this again. This is how memory works. I thought I beat him, but when I look back at the tournament records on USCF.org or whatever the URL is. It, tur- it turns out this little kid I was playing back in 1997 won. But I remember this other, even smaller kid, his little brother, uh, at the end of the game, he couldn't even reach like the board. And he was like jumping up and down to his brother. You should play this. You should play this. He's going through all these complicated variations. And that was like the six-year-old Hikaru you know, <laughs> advising his brother wow. on, on what to play. And I'm like, who's this little kid? Like, uh, the game's over. Like, whatever. And... <laughs> And then I remember, I think this was might have been my very last tournament. I had a really good run. 
of unbeaten games. You know, I was un- unbeaten, either one or a draw. And I, I, I was playing, I felt, at like 2,300 strength. And then I played this 13-year-old girl, and she crushed me in nine moves. And I, after the and I knew what, what the ninth move was my weak move. But she even came up to me and said, ah, oh, you know, instead of bishop b5, maybe you should have done this on the dark squares or whatever. And that was Irina Crush. Ah. And she crushed me. <laughs> and I figured, oh, I just, I, I'm too, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't compete. And that's kind of when I stopped playing. Mm. Um, and, well, I mean, I guess if someone had to beat you and had it lead to that, at least there was someone famous. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I played a lot of, in, even in tournaments now, I played a lot of like strong, prodigious kids. Like, they are so good, these kids. It's like unbelievable. And I'll ask them, what, what do you think you're good at? Positional stuff, tactics, openings. And they'll say, oh, I'm horrible at openings or I'm horrible at tactics. But then you play them a game and they have like the most dazzling tactics and they know the opening <laughs> for the 18th move. And then after the game, if you're going over, I always try to go over the game with my opponent. They're like, oh, no, there's this variation, this variation. They know openings perfectly. Like, I don't know. I think maybe when you're playing kids, the best thing to do is to get into non-familiar opening positions mm. and that you might understand very well. And I know that sounds vague, but they really do know openings well. Yeah. And they, I think they do have trouble outside of their traditional openings. That's that's good advice. I uh, may have to adjust my repertoire a bit for that since I play such popular openings. <laughs> yeah, well, I play, I play the King's Indian, but now I might start it off with... Let's say they do D4 and I do D6 and they do C4. Mm-hmm. To get into the King's Indian, you do Knight F6. But I might do E5 right away. Mm. And and it puts me into positions I'm very familiar with because they're King's Indian-like. But for the kids, it's that they're immediately out of theory. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that sounds like a good strategy. I have to consider that. I haven't thought about that enough. James, what content books, resources have you created that you think would be great for just uh, adult chess improvers to consume? Well, I definitely, my book, skip the line uh, inspired me to use those same techniques to prove out those techniques while studying chess. Mm. So that's a book I wrote about learning something very quickly as an adult. It's like the perfect book for adult improvement. It's all the techniques I've used as an adult, whether it was business day trading, podcasting or comedy or writing or chess I've had to learn many skills at like an almost professional level or, or a solid professional level throughout my, because I've changed careers a lot as an adult. So I think that's very important. And, and by the way, I also talk in that book about how to, and I'm not promoting the book, don't buy it if you don't want, but uh, I also talk about how you should monetize doing the things you love. Like now in this world, you know, take Eric Rosen as a great example. He is one of the best Twitch streamers on the planet. He's such a skilled streamer. And it shows that you don't have to be in the top 100 or even the top 1,000 in the world to be a professional now at what you love. And and Eric's a great example of that. He makes a ton of money streaming. And unlike Kakaro, Eric's not, he's not a grandmaster. He's not in the top 20 in the world, but he's a, a, a great, he, he, for all I know, he makes more money than Hikaro streaming. So I don't know. And there's many examples like that. There are people who, who are even in the 1800s who are professional level at, in chess, but just not playing, but doing other things. So I talk a lot about that in, in, in that book. But in terms of chess specifically, I think if you get books of tactics, if you get, I really like these blindfold books. I take them with, you know, the books that give you blindfold exercises. I take those with me into tournaments. There's a great book I read recently that was really powerful by Catronius, 
about how to play equal positions. And he, mm-hmm. he basically said Magnus was great at playing equal positions. So that was very interesting to see how Magnus will outmaneuver someone in a very equal position in order to find opportunities. Along those lines, Gotham Chess uh, has a video where he shows Magnus, who's 2,800, beating 2,400s. And I thought that was very useful. Like a 2,400 will crush me. But here's how Magnus just dismantles these people who crush me. And seeing how he did it, that was very useful. So, like, I don't always understand when Magnus is playing Caruana. Like, I don't always understand what they're doing. Right. Nobody does, <laughs> except that. But when Magnus is dismantling a 2400, it's a little easier to understand and see the difference in skill level. So that that was very useful. And I always go through at least one Mikhail Tal game a day, just to kind of ultimately to win a game at chess, you gotta you've got to destroy someone. And Tal was great at at destroying his enemies. He he would yeah. kill his enemies. <laughs> and, and so he would kill his enemies were the, his opponents, and he would literally annihilate them. And it was insane. Like if you go over the the the, the World Championship in 1960, Badvinik Tal, there are games where he makes the most insane moves that I can't even imagine making that against the world champion of chess. <laughs> and then he would just dismantle Botvinnik. And the comp- everybody knew it was a bad move. And the computer now says, yeah, it's a bad move. But he would just, he knew how to destroy people. So he's a good person to have as a virtual mentor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think maybe my last question here for you, James, is, um, you know, you mentioned that you, the higher purpose that you've attached to your own chess journey uh, is to show that adults can improve, and I love that. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to steal that or anything, but I've, I've felt like that's, that's been part of what I've been trying to do as well as, as having a higher purpose for my own chess journey. So I really relate to that, and because I think that's so awesome, I'm curious: Do you plan on, you know, documenting at least the highlights of your journey somewhere—a blog, a video, or a book, or anything like that? Along yeah, I think, I think probably a book but that's only if i get to you know <laughs> if, if i end up at like 1800 instead of 2400 <laughs> i probably won't write a book another person by the way another experiment i did and this is a useful this is a weird experiment but there's this guy stephen kotler who writes about how to get into the flow state and you know when you're playing chess and you're deep into the position you're in a flow state you, you lose track of time which often causes time trouble but you're thinking very very deep and he said there's evidence that if you feel grateful, you get it's easier to enter the flow state. So if I've experimented with feeling grateful between each move, and that I find nobody believes me on this, but it's upped my game quite a bit. Ah, so, interesting. And, and I should mention that over the past year, like in cl- my classical rating on Lee Chess has gone from basically like two thousand to twenty four hundred. So I, I guess in that sense, these techniques have all been working for me. And now I'm also needing, you know, I have to improve my my tournament playing skills as well. Yeah, well, maybe that's one of your your twenties in the eighty twenty is the 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 gratitude between moves. Who knows? That could be. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, that's that's really interesting. I'm I definitely might want to try that. And to your point about experiments, that that's that's a low cost experiment to try. Uh, so try it in Blitz tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I was amazed. Like I would be right after I did that podcast with Steven, I played some Blitz. And like I'd be in these tough positions and then I would just take a step back and for a few seconds think of all the things I'm grateful for. And then boom, I would find like some creative move that I didn't see before. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right. I'm convinced. I'm going to try it for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Well, James, it was it was so great having you on the show today. I, I really loved our conversation. I feel like I could talk about this uh, for another two hours with you, all these different topics. It's amazing to hear your insights and, and to just have this great conversation with you. So uh, I encourage everyone out there to get your book, Skip the Line. I think it's really helpful for adult improvement. I've, I've really enjoyed it myself, uh, as well as everything else that you do, your podcast, your other books, everything is just... Oh, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, all fantastic. I've, I've really enjoyed discovering your work over the past month or so. Who, who's your favorite chess streamer oh interesting chess streamer it's probably levy gotham chess yeah yeah, yeah he's I, good he's one of the first that i discovered in my return to chess about a year and a half ago and uh i mean i, I just think he does a, a an amazing balance between entertainment and education and i don't know if there's many others who can who can kind of offer both at such a high level that he does so yeah and so here, here's one last challenge i'll give your listeners and yourself and i'm giving to me as well sure don't be afraid to um get out of your comfort zone and so one of the most popular chess books in history is bobby fisher's my 60 memorable games Mm -hmm. now he was the world champion he's maybe the best player ever and who knows but and so you feel like okay he could write that book but i challenge anybody to write a book called my 60 memorable losses (laughs) doesn't matter if you're an 800 rated player or a 2800 rated player write the book, go to Amazon. You, um, you can upload basically a, a formatted version of your book and, they'll, and and it'll be published instantly on Amazon as both a paperback and a Kindle. Just write the book and do it. And you might say to yourself, well, no one cares about my losses, my games. I'm not you know, a world champion. doesn't matter. Anyone could publish a book. And when you do that, it'll make you take your losses really seriously when you study them. And, and you'll learn those openings and you'll study these losses. Mm. And maybe the only people who buy it are, is your family. But think about this. Your great-grandkids, they might love chess. And they realize, oh, their great-grandfather or mother wrote, wrote a book about their 60 memorable losses. And that could be their starting point for them being the world champion. So just do it. And don't worry about feeling like a, 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 an imposter. Yeah, I love that. Well, I think uh, the good news about that type of book is that we're all qualified. We all have 60 losses, uh, many more than that. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just a matter of whether your ego can handle it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I love that. And I love the idea of, uh, you know, just diving into your losses and understanding why they happened and uh, the learning that would come with that. Again, thank you, James, so much for your time today. It's been great talking to you. Uh, loved everything you said. And um yeah, just been an honor to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for having me on the show. It was really a pleasure talking to you. It's my favorite topics, obviously. So I could talk about it forever, which I probably did. So <laughs> thank you once again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.